Yeah. Let me finish this and then you go ahead. Um, so let's start on this again. Um, so looking ahead, next week we will do Flannery O'Connor. And I think I sent you four stories. It may have been three, but I'll, I'll send you four again to make sure you have all four. I'll only concentrate on two of them. Um, I'll, I'll mention something about the other two, but I want to focus on two of them. One of them is um, Mrs. Greenleaf, about a woman, and um, A Good Man is Hard to Find, about a woman, a grandmother. And they're both powerful. They're among her better stories, and I'll, I'll make some passing remarks on the others, but we will do those. So next week, Fenner O'Connor, and that will complete our time on the short stories. Okay. After that, we will um, we will pick up Flannery O'Connor's novel, and that is straight out of the Bible. The Violent Bear It Away is a passage we've gone over. We went over it in Dante. You're probably not going to remember it, but it, the title of her novel is The Violent Bear It Away. That's scriptural. She's going to deal with the problem of a Catholic being raised in a modern world. The protagonist one of will be. Um, Raber, a teacher. This teacher has been raised on all the modern ideals. Everyone we've talked about, evolution, Freud, Darwin, his whole mindset has been formed by those. And he looks at this old man as an idiot, superstitious, dumb, backwards. And his young nephew, he wants to um, indoctrinate, retrain. So she's taken a fundamental fact of our existence that most educators today will look at Christians as superstitious and backwards and having these notions about faith and the sacred or miracles. And she's taken that head on. So the story is about um, young Tarwater. He's the nephew of old Tarwater, who's been a prophet, who dies and passes on the mantle to this boy to carry on his Catholic faith. And the boy wants nothing to do with it. In absolute rebellion against his grandfather. He thinks he's stupid and backwards. And Raber, the school teacher, um, has a child and, the young, um, and doesn't want him to be baptized. So there's a real conflict between two worldviews going up against each other. We started with that. And remember, that was the issue in Moby Dick, a scientific way of looking at the world and a Protestant religion colliding. And we saw it in Dostoevsky and Brothers. Two worldviews um, in collision, OK? So next week, final Connor short stories. What I'd like to do then is either take a week or two weeks break. And I'm, I wasn't thinking about two weeks, but since the priest is giving this lecture series, it might help to um, take a longer break um, because I'm hoping to get some of those people back. So we'll take a week break or two week break. And then, then we go into the last lap of this course or the work that we've been doing together. We will do The Violent Beard Away, T.S. Eliot's The Murder of the Cathedral, which is about the martyrdom of Beckett. It is, it's an extraordinary play, extraordinary. Um, C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces, which is another extraordinary work, very short, very readable. And then um, Faulkner's Go Down Moses. So every one of the last works that we will deal with 
touch more directly on scripture and our faith. So it won't be indirect anymore. These things are going to go to the heart of our faith. Okay? And let me just say this by way of reminder. Um, you know that from the beginning, one of the, one of the pitches that I've been making for our work, um, a teacher, a theologian, a catechist, can describe our Catholic faith in terms of ideas. Um, my own assumption is most of you know our faith pretty pretty deeply. I mean, you're not young and you've been living your faith forever. Literature doesn't do that. Literature doesn't give us ideas. It gives us actual experiences so that we enter into the experiences of another. That experience becomes one with our own. So it deepens our own experiences. Um, oh I don't, is it, or is it here? Uh, Doc, can you get it? It's, it's probably in the, in the case. And remember when we started out, I said, you, you won't, maybe you won't appreciate this right now, but what, what you've stepped into is recovering a tradition. Because it should, it should be um, um, the natural birthright of a Catholic to inherit a tradition. That's one of the uh, marks that distinguishes from us from the Protestant worldview. Our tradition goes back forever. So the, the patristic tradition, but also the literary tradition, are part of our faith. Except we live in modern America, and most of us assume, like Protestants, that all we need to do is have faith. But we know from our work in apologetics, particularly Benedict and Jean Paul, that um, I feel like I'm at home. <laughs> For those of you online who aren't here, my wife is being very tender right now. Um, where was I? I'm distracted. Um, we've, we're inheriting, we're recovering a tradition. So it should deepen our faith. Remember that John Paul said the most important thing facing Catholics today was to, to um, reunite faith and reason. That we were to pull faith and reason together and not separate them the way they've been separated in the Protestant world. That our reason, the natural order, is a gift from God. It has a lot to offer. It, it nourishes our minds, our hearts. It helps us to see things. And it helps us to feel things. I can't believe that any of you have read these stories and not found Judas, just in case. I can't believe any, I'm, maybe I'm, it's hard for me to read that book and not be over, overwhelmed. It, to me, it's a frightening, powerful book. So literature always helps us to see more deeply the thing in front of us, that more is going on than we think, and to feel it helps us to order our feelings because we're experiencing things. So, um, so here, so Flannery O'Connor next week, and then we'll take either a week or two week break, and then um, home stretch. We are going home. Um, whatever existential difficulties that leaves us with. Um, yeah. So we're doing Flannery O'Connor short stories next week. Yep. No, Doc, we're taking a break for a week or two, whatever it will be, and then we'll start. 
the novels and the longer works. Um, the Violent Bared Away, uh, Murder Cathedral, Two We Have Faces, and um, 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 Go Down, thanks. God, thank you. And remember that I said that in this home stretch, we're going to go back to the longer lyrics to open the. So we have a lot to do. We, we will we have a lot to do here. Okay, is everybody clear on. Yeah. Do we have faces? T.S. Eliot, or I mean, sorry, C.S. Lewis? See, I think it's his greatest work, by far. I mean, the Narnia things to me are an embarrassment, but they're just abstract allegories. Till we have faces, I think, is one of the finest novels of the 20th. It's just a remarkable. It's his reworking of the Cupid psyche myth. So it's very archetypal, but very modern in what he does with it. Very much. And, interestingly, the central figure, the that it's narrated from the point of view of a woman. Um, we are really in the light, except most of the women we're looking at are not very likable. Um, okay, is everybody okay? And I've got to come up with a movie, or maybe a couple. I'm, I'm thinking about having a couple of dinner movies nights just to get out of you all I can before we stop. So... Yeah. Doc, did you, you had an announcement to make or? I'm just going to send out a sign up for snacks. When Robert's sitting dates, they are through. So sign up for what works. You had to get that in, didn't you? Sign up for what works with you. And it was just as necessary. Would you not bring our marital problems here into the class, please? On the movie, uh, has anybody seen The Hundred Foot Journey? No, it's, it's, uh, it's a place in France. It starts in India. It's a very good story of forgiveness. Say it again, Mary, The Hundred? The Hundred Foot Journey. journey. And it's also about food. <laughs> Lots of food. I probably shouldn't. I, I probably shouldn't watch it then. Huh? What's a good movie? Yeah. Let's let's start. Any any prayers? You can. Uh, I want to pray. The names are going to be confusing. I want to pray for Tom, the father-in-law, the father of my son-in-law, Tom, who passed away this morning. Oh wow. And uh, I also want to pray for a dear friend, Gail. Away a few days ago. Dale? Gail. Gail. How old is Tom? Young. 64. 64. Yeah. And also uh, for our Tom's mother, who also has terminal cancer, all three of them from cancer. Okay, help me with the names in a minute, okay? Tom? No, in a minute when I say the prayer. I'm going <laughs> to. My mind's not holding on. As you all know too well, my mind is not holding on to things anymore. Any other prayer? Uh, oh. oh, yes. Good, thank you. <laughs> um, my sister Laura uh, has been diagnosed with cancer. We're waiting to see how they're going to treat it, but I'd like to pray for her. What's her name? Laura. Laura? With an L, Laura. Laura likes the movie. Um, <laughs> 
Like L, with starting with an L, like yeah, Lee, yeah. Like what? I'm going to wait till after the prayer. So let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life this day and for the gift of yourself in the Mass, for all the ways in which you offer yourself all day long. Um, I hope one of the things that has become more a part of all of us during this work we've done together is our awareness that you are present everywhere. You just don't come in and out of our lives. That isn't what happens. In your timeless world, we're always some way in your sight, in your care. So whatever goes on, the most ordinary things, planting in a garden, working with stones, stones speak. Everything has meaning. Um, the temptation, it seems to me, we face, given our faith and the strength of it, is superstition that we can make of things that are not there. It takes a real care. The artists that we're reading take things right in front of us. A stone, a hut, a church, a chapel, um, a, um, a Judas tree, drugs, um, a post office. They take the most ordinary things in our lives and show us that something extraordinary is going on so they're teaching us to see that the thing right in front of us, close, has a meaning at a distance, far off. Can we see it? Um, our hope has been that the reading we've done will enlarge our sight and um, fill, deepen, extend our capacity to feel so that we draw nearer to you because as a God and human, um, you had sight beyond telling and a capacity to love beyond telling as well. So help us enter more fully into your life, all that we're doing with these stories to make our faith richer. Um, I ask, um, sorry, God help me now. And I'm really sorry. Um, Tom, Tom Jr. Tom Sr. Yeah. And my friend Gail, and also Tom Jr.'s mother. Mother. Is also uh, in stage four. And yeah. Losing yeah. Her Please watch over Tom. Is there Tom and Tom Jr. and Ga Gail? Gail. Yeah. Um, be with them in their grief, in the ordeals. Um, Gail with her cancer. Uh, That's Trisha. Trisha, oh. Gail and Tom both passed. Okay, sorry. Trisha has the cancer, the stage four. Okay. Um, and the two men, Tom and Tom. Uh, Tom and Trisha are the parents of our son-in-law, Tom. Tom. He and our precious grandchildren are losing both. Yeah, both Toms died. No, no. The second Tom is our Tom. Yeah. Our son-in-law. So his he's lost has lost his father and his mother is not doing well. Yeah. At all. Receive Tom and his father. God, sorry. Just just Tom. 
Tom, the father, and, and my friend, Dan's friends, and my, my, and my friend Gail. No, who died? Tom. Tom. My son-in-law's father. My grandchildren's other grandfather died. And? And his, and Tom's mother, the grandmother of our precious grandchildren is losing her battle. I know, but the two men who died are Tom and? Just Tom. Just Tom. Mm -hmm. Oh. And the other one's Gail, her friend. Oh, okay. Those are the only, I thought two men passed, but just one. Just one. Tom, okay. Receive Tom into your kingdom. And Gail. Gail passed as well, or she's got stage no, four? No, this is my friend of almost 50 years, Gail, died a few days ago. Okay, yeah. And receive Gail. I'm so sorry, Anne. Um, Tom and Gail receive them um, out of this world. Um, they're going home. Um, if there is a time in purgatory, let our prayers help them. It's one of the great gifts that we have in our pride. <laughs> we think to have, we have to manage everything ourselves and whatever we get will be from our own doing. One of the graces of our church is that so much is going on that we don't, we're not always aware of that's offered for our help. It's a humbling grace to know that somebody is helping it um, when we thought we would get what we deserved and Suddenly we're getting prayers that from people we don't even know. Let our prayers speed them to you. Wash away their sins. Um, prepare them to enter into the joy of being with you and those who went before them. And I ask a, blessing, um, a special blessing on Anne in her heart. Bless her soul um, to carry these. Um, and sorry, and there's one out there and I'm missing it. Huh? Trisha, Trisha. Uh, my son-in-law Tom's mother, he's losing both parents. Yeah, but was there somebody else who offered? <coughs> Laura. Yes. Oh, Lori, say, sorry, Melody, Lord, she's struggling with cancer too, yeah, yeah. Laura. Yeah, and be with Laura in her ordeal. For all of the people who are losing loved ones who are, who are at the threshold of leaving this world, um, let the danger or the ordeals that they face strengthen them in their faith. Um, surround Laura with your protection. Um, let the doctors help her. But more importantly, um, let this be a time of her letting go of the world, preparing to be with you. <laughs> to be free of all these ordeals and the sorrows that come with them. And, yeah, and I ask a special blessing too for a couple in our parish at St. Francis, Mike and Kathy. Mike has just been diagnosed as having a cancer that's metastasizing, so. Um, we're of an age where age is catching up with most of us, so um, help each of us prepare um, to let go of this world to be with you. And let the readings which speaks so directly to this, help us in that regard too. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, I'm going to do one more psalm tonight. Um, um, we started them and I wanted to state, and I may do one next time we meet with Fineral Connor, but 
I wanted to stay with the Psalms to stay closer to scriptural sentiments and meanings um, because of the works that we're doing. So I'm going to read Psalm 137. Remember here that um, some of the things I've said before. There's nothing in creation that doesn't participate, reflect God's beauty. His order, the, the, pre, the mark of the Trinity is everywhere. Every, everything has a trini, Trinitarian nature. If you were readers of St. Thomas, you'd know that. Um, there are three principles, and I won't go into them because they're too philosophic, but each thing has three principles, or it couldn't exist, a form, an order, a purpose. They're all there. So everything is stamped, marked with the um, image of the Trinity, even though we don't see it. And science certainly isn't going to see it. it it takes a metaphysical mind to grasp the thing. But every, we believe everything in creation is a reflection of God in some way. Even stones. Stones speak. It's been one of our themes for a long time now. Um, so everything sings. Do we hear it? People raised in our world by its ideology, science, science evolution, Freud, um, what they see are perversions or things that don't have a nature, they just keep changing and where they're going we don't know, where they came from we don't know. So kids today, people today are being raised on these ideologies that present the world in a certain way, but it doesn't include anything like beauty or music, that kind of thing. Um, but in the Psalms we're reminded that, in the other Psalms that we've read, that everything in creation sings to the glory of God. Remember the words, awake my soul, sing, the harp plays music, it sings. Um, and the, the issue here in Psalm 137 is how can you sing when you have um, been separated from God and you're on your homeland and your temple are gone when the place in which you would do your singing was the temple because that's where you'd praise God. So he's, he's um, lamenting the fact that he's lost a reason for singing. And yet, in his captivity, this state of exile, he still manages to sing. It's a prayer because remember, all, all the Psalms are poetic. They, they are meant to be put to music. They, have, they all run by poetic devices. Opposition, contrariety, um, splitting apart. There are all sorts of literary tropes that are being worked here. Most people don't look at them because they think of them as being religious and not poetry. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. They're in captivity. The prospect they're facing is they may, never, they may never see home again. And the lament is serious. He's saying, I don't ever want to forget you, no matter what happens to me. No matter how bad things get, if I lose my temple, my church, my faith, I don't ever want to forget you. Don't ever let that happen. And the evidence of that will be song. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. 
Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Raise it, raise it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall be he who requites you with what you have done to us and dashes them against the rock. Happy shall he be, the little ones, and dashes them against the rock. C.S. Lewis was really offended by this line. He's got a wonderful book on the Psalms. If you like Lewis and you want to look into the songs, pick up his book. It's a, it's a wonderful book on the Psalms. But this troubled him because it speaks so much of a vengeance that he thought was unchristian. But for me to try to put this into perspective, remember, God was not shy about punishing um, people who worshipped idols, you know, who did all the bad things in the names of idols. I mean, he punished them constantly. So God, God was not shy about punishing people. And remember that, that Christ, um, in, in so many of the parables, is in a situation where, like, the, like the, the steward um, to whom he showed mercy. He showed him mercy, and the guy went out and didn't show mercy, and he calls him back, and, and he gives him a dark end. So it's not like Christ was this buddy who overlooked things. So when you read this ending, just keep in mind, you know, that, that these um, are not evidence of a mean, unjust God. Um, okay, to our work. I want to do a, um, um, a very quick review. Um, uh, I'm debating about going back to an experience Suzanne had. A friend in the neighborhood has got um, cancer and she's undergoing chemo and she was talking about the prospect of losing her hair. And you know that Suzanne had a bout with that. and It's memorable for me. Um, we were talking about it at dinner tonight and I was making the comment that a woman's hair, I don't know where that phrase comes from, but a woman's hair is the glory of a woman. You know, that it's her hair that distinguishes her. From who? Paul. Is it from Paul? Yeah. Good for him. Um, so to have your hair cut off is a humiliation. That's my word. Suzanne was reluctant to use it, but I, I wasn't. Because what was at issue in her cancer was her breasts and her hair. They're the two most visible signs of a woman. Take those away and distinguish her from a man. The two things that distinguish, I mean, that, God, that a woman cannot define herself today is stunning to me. Take away a woman's hair, and she, in some ways, is no different from a man. Take away her breasts. They are the source of nourishment for a babe, for God's sake. The fundamental distinguishing mark of a woman is she can have a child, a man can't. She bears a child. God only came into the world through a woman. I mean, it wasn't Peter Seaman, it was... Holy Spirit, so, and I don't want to underplay Peter's role in this, because I have too much at stake as a man. But um, those are the two marks of a woman, of her femininity. And I can remember when I shaved Suzanne's hair off and looked at her baldness. Sorry. 
have to write a letter to this neighbor. How proud I was of her. The, the moment raised for me, a Holocaust moment. We're not in a Holocaust today. When a woman has, suffers cancer, she's not in a Holocaust moment. But I couldn't look at her without calling to mind Holocaust victims and thinking, what a glory. Um, they were giving them, I mean, you, I mean, most of the Jews would have resented, you know, but there was, I can't even remember the name, Edith Stein, I can't remember, it was a wonderful woman whose sister was going to be burned and she offered to suffer for her. So she went in to offer herself. She converted Catholicism. But um, I, I looked at that, I, I hold that picture in my head of a woman's baldness as a sort of glory because it means she's given up everything in this moment. So there can't, for me, there, there couldn't have been a more humiliating moment for a moment. We were talking about the rapes in Hamas and what they, you know, what they're doing to women and, um, and um, raping. And the counterpart of that cannot be for a woman cutting off a man's penis. I, I don't care where anybody's going. A woman brings life into the world. It's one of the distinguishing marks. So for a woman to give in to those things in some ways makes what she does in some ways worse. The ultimate sin for me, at least in my reading, you know it, is male. Satan was the source of all evil. That's the, that's the intellect. He's, I don't think he's sort of a male figure. It's intellectual. The greatest evils we've experienced in our books, besides um, the, the Orestes, remember the, the Furies and Orestes having to kill his mom and having to face the Furies and things like that. The greatest sin we've faced, experienced in this class, have been male. Iago is the, the, one of the most sinister, one, no matter where you go, he's got to be one of the most sinister figures in all of literature. And we read in Winter's Tale that Leontes gets close to Iago and he says, nothing? When, remember, Camilla tries to persuade him against putting his wife in jail? She's pregnant. So you've got a feminine principle bringing life into the world and Yant is going nothing is nothing, nothing, and then nothing is nothing. I mean, he's almost going nuts because it's the way in which the male intellect and more and more in modern times, the female intellect can destroy life. Um, so this struggle, this ordeal with cancer, you know, and a woman having to um, undergo the humiliation of losing her hair, for me is... A grotesque, but I'm saying this to those of you who, you know, who are friends with women who are undergoing cancer and the humiliations of that, that at least in my mind, I hope something in you will bless them, that identify them with the Holocaust, that, that what it is that makes a woman a woman is taken from her, her breasts are going to be operated on, her hair is going to be removed, that in my mind there is something close to Christ for any woman who can make a place for that, if I can put it that way. Um, and I'm saying this in the context of stories about women who are not very flattering to look at. So um, let's start. Um, remember that as a background to the stories that we've been doing, focusing on women, I gave those comments by um, John Paul and Benedict. And um, John Paul's comment was, late in his life, he came to this point where he realized the glory of women. That was late in his life. He's, he's the Pope. And it must have overtaken him in a tremendous way for him to have said that, to make that kind of a place for a woman that he didn't have before. 
And um, Benedict and um, von Balthasar both spoke about the church and the importance of the Marian principle. It was central to Vatican II, the struggles in Vatican II, to establish that Marian principle. Because the concern was the church was becoming too male. Organizations, computers, mechanical things, structural things, conceptual things, organizations, um, administrations, bureaucracy, they're all male in the sense that they have as their root cognitive acts. And the concern was that they would the church would lose something of its Marian character, which was associated with what's more intuitive, what's more mystical. That's the birthright of a woman more than a man. And so I use that as a backdrop just to keep in mind when we did Jane Austen, because as, as you know from me, I pretty, pretty strongly, I was urging everybody to hold on to this because it was a new insight for me. Jane Austen was the last major writer to take love and marriage as her theme and she did it repeatedly in five novels. All five novels are great. They're, they're united by one principle, that love is the greatest virtue in man and marriage is the completion of it. Find a writer after Jane Austen who gives love or marriage that place. It was my way of understating a sad fact that the realism of the modern world is horrible. What the modern world has produced for us is horrors. It's taken away love, it's taken away marriage, it's taken away the family. And women have participated in that. So we're looking at a really bleak situation and right now in our reading we've entered our time and I'm contending that it's not altogether a very promising time. And if we set the modern world against Jane Austen, we'll see it more clearly. And it's just interesting. I did not plan it, but here it is. We're reading women authors, and they have nothing good to say about women. They are petty, spiteful, controlling, um, defiant. They're all um, anti-human. The women in Petrified Man are, are Medusa figures. They turn men into stone. And they have no fondness for having children. Children to them are an embarrassment. They describe their fondness for the freaks in the show. And the great irony is they're partly freaks. We talked about the ironies in all those stories. Sister, in where well, I live at the post office, is a horrible creature. It's, it's, in, it's an example of infernal comedy. It's a hellish condition. I mean, we have to ask, are they damned? I mean, what do, how do we look at this woman? Everything she does is manipulative. Wait, I want to underscore that, because I didn't use that word before. Everything she does is manipulative. Everything she does refers to, as she keeps talking to us directly, is to make us one with her, to sympathize with her side, to take her side. She's exactly like Wickham. So, petty, um, spiteful, overbearing, defiant, manipulative. So we're being, we're being shown women who are, who couldn't be farther away from the women Jane Austen is showing us, okay? So however unattractive it is, we are in a real world and the, it presents a question, what are we gonna do with this world? What are we to you know, take it on? One of the contentions that I made last time, and I just wanna remind you of it, is that I said, and you can argue with me, I mean, we, I don't wanna take up a debate, but you know you're always welcome to push back. Um, the, the claim I'm making is that women are emotionally far more sensitive, emotionally sensitive than men. 
always emotionally. That means they can go, they can go off the rocks. They can take their emotion. We all know women can go nuts emotionally. So the emotions by themselves are not sufficient. They need help. But women, one of the marks distinguishing men, women from men is that they are far more emotionally sensitive than men are. Susanna just happened to put on last night, um, probably won't mean anything to most of you, but we were putting on Jesse Stone, Tom Selleck series, Jesse Stone, it's a, it's, a, it's a detective police thing. And I was laughing at it because I said, if anybody wanted a contrast between a feminine way of looking at things and a masculine, watch a Jesse Stone movie. It's male in all his objectivity. There's no feeling or, or fineness of emotions or a, sense, a sensitivity to emotion. He does in some ways, but it's always kept controlled. He, he, he feels sorry for young girls because they need fathers. But that's it. Um, and I thought how funny, because the tendency of men is to live in their heads in cognitive structures, and the tendency of women is to to be rooted in their emotions. They, they, they carry the prospect of children in their bodies. They're much more directly related to concrete things than men. So I hope it's clear, hence the need for marriages, because without them, women are left with an awful curse. It was women by the cross, but it, it's still a burden. Remember, the Medusa and the Furies are feminine figures. Emotionally, they, they can petrify, turn men into stone. But that's also the source of love. Um, so we've been, we've been exploring a, a, the world of the feminine and um, at, at the threshold of the modern world. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you to take real care in looking at is go from Jane Austen to Eudora Welty or Flannery O'Connor or Catherine Ann Porter and you go from a world that looks back to a Catholic medieval view in which love and marriage are paramount to their disappearance. I hope that's clear by now. Yeah, because I, I can't, we, I don't think we could have, I, I could have never put it that forcefully, but just by an accident of the reading, you can't miss it. In Jane Austen, you've got a, because oh, I asked the question, could a man have told that story? Absolutely not. It's a woman whose sensitivity is so keen, she catches every nuance of gesture in, nothing escapes Jane Austen, nothing. Nothing escapes Elizabeth. She's, she has this keen emotional sensitivity to everything that's going on. But she's able to give it a language as a writer to help us enter into that world, to enter into a world as a woman. It's not a place to give equal time for a man. <coughs> she's giving us the world through the sensibility of a woman. So it's an extraordinary gift. Go from that. So 18, 1815, that's when she published most of her works in that period, in that 10 year period, 1850, I think, of the line. 1815. 1915, Freud is publishing his works. Darwin's already been published. Marx has already been published. I hope everybody's clear on that. Because I can't make it any clearer. Go from Jane Austen's five novels, which were loved at that time, there was a home for them, to 1950 and Freud, psychological theory, Marx, Darwin to see the world we've inherited that's been our world. And ask why the family's having such hard times or marriages or... Let me stop because that's such a major point. I, I'm just trying to do a really quick review. Any comments or questions or, or pushbacks? 
questions on this or it was a stroke of really good fortune or a grace that I that I hold on that I lost my mind to listen to somebody wanting me to do Jane Austen <laughs> sorry Mary Why the same-sex people want marriage, even though it's really not marriage? Yes, they're looking for that fulfillment yeah. in their relationship. Yeah, I don't think they'll ever find it, but they're still. Yeah, I'm. An, I'm such dangerous ground tonight, but I'm jumping out there anyway. So, I, I want to. The last issue, there was an article written by a woman who's written in a couple times, a wonderful writer, um, with the title, Self-Abuse. And the point that she's making, and she's using D.H. Lawrence, which is sort of cursed to most Catholics. He shouldn't be, but I mean, there's problems with Lawrence. But she's using D.H. Lawrence because if you've read anything of D.H. Lawrence, you know that he's affirming the love between a man and a woman. And she's making point that the essential act in a marriage is intercourse. Intercourse. Hold on to that for a minute. Intercourse. And she's not shy about it. Nobody should be. John Paul wasn't. If you look at same-sex marriages or trans, the fundamental act at the root of a sexual activity is masturbation. It's alone. It's private. It's the isolated individual. And even in a couple, same-sex marriage cannot have intercourse. Hold on to that. And by the way, go back to, remember weeks ago I, I told you about our experience with uh, um, sorry, um, Theology of the Body, that Christopher West was um, affirming the, the role of marriage and intercourse, erotic love in a marriage and its importance, and was underscoring the role that masturbation has come to take in the modern world. I mean, I, I don't, and I'm not saying this to fright people or to make judgments. I don't want to do that. These are our sins. I'm saying, I'm saying it honestly. They're our sins. They're what we've been raised on. But it's just another indication of how far away we are from the world three centuries ago. We've entered a world unlike any world I'm aware of in history. That's how, that's how difficult it is. And the problems with marriage and love are so deep, just so deep. So in one way, I'm grateful that we could do this. I know it's a risk because it takes a lot of courage to hear me talk about this stuff but, or read these things. But any comments before we get on? Because I want to get to the, our two stories tonight. Any? What's the name of magazine? First Things. And if you go online, I think you can go online and you can actually Google it and... Um, get the current issue. It's called self-abuse. Could have been called um, self-medication. It's, it's excellent. It's excellent. It, it, they have a really good IT department, so you can subscribe and then it'll be like a year. Yeah, we stop. I mean, but it is the most excellent. And you, you would love it. It's out there. You read the letters to the editor. You can't really read them because it's people like Dr. Bob writing to other doctors on would you not do that to me, please? Why am I here? Why am I? Why are you and I talking? 
There was such good sense to everything Mary Jo except what she said in the middle of that. And that's because she had too much wine. Yeah. One of the things he mentioned, and it's part of his ministry there online, is because what's destroying the youth of this country is the uh, internet pornography. The, the pornography. And that's all part of what kind of what you described. Is that they isolated. Yes. 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 And more and more women, it's really clear, more and more women are turning into pornography. And that's and factual. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. God. I was thinking about um, when you said literature, you know, the, uh, taking our own experiences, and like um, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, thinking about, well, how, how to apply that to our, you know, it's just so far removed, it was, it's just so beautiful to see the families and how they were, they all gathered and did everything together and, um, you know, it's almost, it's, it's hard to think about how to apply that to our life today. I'm, I'm so glad you said that, Michelle, because I, I wanted to end the class with a note of encouragement. Let me do it right now because it's my response to the difficulties that most of us are aware of you know, in our own lives and in our culture. I mean, the only thing that I could say how to apply it is this, and it's a sort of exhortation to everybody here in this class. Hold on to your faith. Hold on to your faith. Do everything you can um, to be open to, to receive the gifts of reason. I mean, you ought to know that from this class, because if if there's anything I've done for this class, it's been to offer I hope the best that reason can do for our faith. So hold on to your faith like you're hanging from a cliff by your fingers, my advice. Do everything you can to develop your powers of reason the way that we've been doing because they will strengthen you in your faith. I can't remember teaching you anything that would have weakened your faith or undermined it. Everything we've done has been to strengthen our faith by seeing things in the natural order people of faith who just live by faith alone don't look at. You guys have been doing this for four years, so you've got a rich tradition now. You've, you've got a lot of help on how to apply this, Michelle. You. So hold on to your powers of reason and then, um, I mean, it, you know, Mary and, and Connie, and do those things. Invite somebody for dinner. Have somebody. I mean, I'm so sorry that we haven't done the dinners. I've wanted to do those. with. Invite somebody for dinner. Have somebody over. I mean, you can go to church and I would say be careful of the bureaucratic character of our church because there's some things about it you want to be careful about. But personal intimate relationships to open in a community? I mean, I think it's one of the defining marks of this. I certainly feel closer to everybody here and I would hope you guys have some sense of Suzanne and me or even our failures. I mean, some of the things we've laughed about. Do all that you can to keep that alive. 
the stories are going to go to it. Let me go, because the second story, Flowering Judah, speaks right to this. I want to, let's go. So quickly, recall the ironies and the, um, the ironies of the setting and the action in Why I Live at the Post Office and Petrified Man. Why I Live at the Post Office. The irony of the, of, um, the post office. The post office is supposed to facilitate communication. Sister leverages. She used it. She's manipulative. Be careful of people opening their souls to you <coughs> when you may not know them well. Everything Sister does is manipulative. She wants us to sympathize with her. So we've, we've got an example. Wait, I hope that's clear. We've got an example. We've got an example of what to do in, in Pride and Prejudice. What to do is we have to answer. The most important thing from Pride and Prejudice is our pride. It blinds us horribly. It's not until we get rid of that that we can begin to love as we should. So the obvious answer is, how do we do this? We start with ourselves. Are we really honest about our pride? The way we cut each other off, our husbands, our spouses, our wives, our children? Do we go out in humility? We talked about that, yes. The difference between Elizabeth at the beginning of the book and in the second half is radical. She's proud, upstanding, independent, <coughs> witty, brave. She's a wonderful woman, but she's mistaken in ways she doesn't see. <coughs> Sorry. The woman in the second half, nobody, the feminists don't write about this. Nobody does. It's sad. She's a changed woman. She's far more receptive. Far more, she's far humbler. She doesn't take things for granted. She doesn't pride herself on her intellect. She said, I who prided myself on my intellect. I thought I knew myself, now I don't. So how we apply it, and this has been a principle from the beginning, we start with ourselves. Um, do we serve each other? Do wives serve their husbands today? I'm saying that really seriously. Do I, how, Mary was the example I held up because we're talking about women now. Um, how well do women serve their husbands? I, honestly, how well? When, when the encouragement is stand up, be empowered, and do what you want to do. How many women serve their husbands in Christ? No woman should enable her husband. No husband should enable his wife. But um, So these novels have all been pointing to women. You know, to um, Jane Austen in one way, these other two women. So the ironies and sister um, are available. She's an example of an unreliable narrator. Everything she says is to win everybody over. But if we're looking closely at her, we're seeing spite, defiance, pride, manipulation. In Petrified Man, we're watching women who do everything they can to defy husbands. They want to make it clear they don't need them. They're not going to answer to them. And the irony is that, that petrified man, <laughs> and we, you have to ask the question at the end of the story, is the little Billy from that undeserved spanking. I mean, it's, a, it's full of spite. They're, they're taking out on him, particularly Leota. They're taking out on him because of angers of their own, that she didn't win that money, and she's envious that Mrs. Pike did. So it's laying bare women, and, you know, and, and it's interesting at a time when feminism is just... Um, so the, the settings, the irony of it's a beauty shop. There's no more grim irony. These women are preoccupied with their beauty. Inwardly, they're medusae, they're furies. They're horrible creatures. 
So the, the, the beauty, if I can put it this way, it, it is the truthfulness of these women writers. They are all women. They're writing about women. The truthfulness, and I'm going to say the charity, because they present these women in a comic light. You could get bitter about these women because there's enough to get bitter about. They're treating them comically. There's a real spirit of charity in the way that they're presenting them. I hope that's clear. It's a little bit like reading Chaucer. There's Sorry? You also think about comedians today, even on TV or something like that. A serious topic can be more palatable if you just kind of push back rather than trying to come across seriously. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. And lots of uh, stand-up comedians are getting taken apart because they're so politically incorrect. <laughs> God, <laughs> God. Humor is not even sacred anymore, um, even though it's good. Here, let's start. Um, yeah, yeah, let's go. Can I ask about Petrified Man? Yeah, go. So it was clear the whole time I read the story about the irony and these horrible women-like theories, right? But then at the very end, the Petrified Man turns out to be a rapist. Are we supposed to take that seriously? So is that his revenge? What is that? How are we supposed to understand that? Because up to then, the women have been, you know, the antagonists the whole time. Yeah. That's not okay. So right. <laughs> I, you know, we talked about... So is it just the conflict between sexes that he's petrified because he feels so petrified and imprisoned, he acts out inappropriately? Right, right. That, that's interesting, but, you know, was it true? First of all, can we trust the narrator? Yeah. Let, let me just say, because we went over this. I, you weren't here last I week. It. Yeah. Sorry. You're supposed to listen to the audio. <laughs> um, the, the, I mean, we, 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 we touched on this. I, you know, I don't know that we can give a definitive answer, but at least one of the things we're meant to entertain, I think, is these women are like Medusae. That's the archetypal figure. The Furies and the Medusae are here. They turn men into stone. What man would want to go? I mean, I, my answer to that is if you read um, Taming of the, Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, watch uh, Petruchio in what he does. Um, because there's a real, after the fall, there's a real struggle between the sexes, and it's real here. Um, my answer to that is, it, we, do, we can't come away with a definitive answer, but at least one of the questions we should ask, particularly because the boy's being spanked, punished the way he is, is did he do it out of revenge? You know, that he's getting back at women. Um, lots of psychologists today, when a man rapes a woman, would you know, probably go back to parents or something like that. How many would go back to a mother or a woman figure? That's more and more likely today in our world, but we don't know. We don't, we, she doesn't answer, and I don't think she intends to. It's that she's presenting something to make us aware of something and leaves us with serious questions just like that one. Um, so here, let, can we go to that evening sun? 
I'm, I'm going to go through this really quickly. If, if, and I'm, I hope you will pardon me on this because I really want to get to Flowering Judas. Um, Faulkner had already written Sound of the Fury before he wrote this. That's an important fact for all of you to know. I seriously considered having you guys read Sound of the Fury. And mostly because of the first section. There are four sections in the, of the, in the Sound of the Fury. They're by each of the kids. Quentin, Jason, um, Benji, and um, Candace. Or th th at least they're central figures. The sections are divided in, the, there are four sections by narrators. The first section is narrated by Benji, or it's told from his point of view. He's an idiot. He's an idiot. He has no coherence. He can't put together two sentences. And Faulkner has everything come through that point of view. I wanted to, um, I'm going to ask all of you to buy it and struggle through it and read it. The, if you read the Benji section, you're in a section to, to all appearances which is incoherent. We're going from perception to perception to perception to something that happened 10 years earlier, to something that happened six months ago, to five years ago. We're lost. There's no way to straighten that out. Faulkner, Faulkner did something no other novelist in the world has ever done, and, and it's democratic. He took an idiot as the subject of a, of a whole entire section. You can't read it without coming away saying, why would I read this mess? It's stupid. Yet he's the only one who wrote it so that we could sympathize, feel what goes on in an idiot's soul. And Faulkner lays clues. So depending on the black servant who's watching over Benji or the occasions that are going on, I've written, I'll, if you want, tell me and I'll send you something I've written on it to clarify it. Because if you know these things, you have a guide as you go through to straighten this out. But while you're there, you're in the mind of an idiot. How, how extraordinary is that? Think about that. Be, in Jane Austen's mind, you're in Elizabeth's mind and heart. Who would dare tell a story from the point of view of an idiot? The, the absolute chaos. Um, anyway, Faulkner had written Sound of the Fury. The, the Sound of the Fury is, is about the decline of the Compson family. It's an aristocratic family. They lost the war. The father turned into an alcoholic. The mother is a whining Calvinist. She's doomed, and she thinks, she thinks Benji's been given to her by God as a punishment. That's that Calvinist, dark, damning mindset. First section, Benji. Second section is by Quentin. Quentin's going to com commit suicide. That's the Quentin of our story. Third section is um, from Jason. And you know what a whining spoiled brat he is. He's older now and he's stealing money from Candy that's being sent to her by her mother, um, Candace, who ran away. She's sending money to her daughter and Jason is stealing it all. Can Candy, Candace will get it back. I mean, that's how that story went. The last ep the story, the fourth section of Sound of Three is told from the point of view of Dilsey. She's the slave and she's the only good person in that book. She's black, she's a woman, she's a servant. She's the only one who believes in Christ. There's my answer to you, Michelle. She's the only, well, truly, she's the only one who believes in, and she is absolutely rock solid. And you get some sense of this here, but it's really small. But she is, she's the center of everything. 
Anyway, he wrote Sound of the Fury. It's the decline of the, it's the, decline of the Compson family and the decline of the South. The moral is slavery spoiled everybody. It's at the source of the corruption. We'll see it here in the story. That's why I wanted you to read it. Um, so he already knew the outcome. In that evening sun, he's going back to the Compson family when the kids were kids. So if we've read Sound of the Fury, we see them adults. If we read That Evening Sun, we're seeing where it all started. We're, we can see what they become because of the way they've been raised. So what he's doing is extraordinary in this story. I mean, it seems like just a... So I'm just going to go over some of this really quickly because I want to get on to Flowering Judas, but I want to try to do some justice to the... That evening sun. Monday is no different from any other weekday in Jefferson now. The streets are paved. Telephone electric companies are cutting um, to make room for iron poles bearing clusters of bloated and ghostly and bloodless grapes. And we have a city laundry which makes the rounds on Monday morning gathering the bundles of clothes into bright colored, specially made motor cars. The soiled wearing of a whole week now flees apparition-like behind alert and irritable electric horns. So we went from an agrarian world to a world defined in terms of machines, mechanics, technical things. You know, it's not Nancy with the bundle on her head or the other black women. It's cars. It's a motorized world. It's electric lights. So uh, we learned that Quentin is telling the story. He's, uh, he was nine when he told it. Um, he says, but 15 years ago on Monday morning, so we're getting the story of Quentin, 15 years older, so he's nine, that means he's 24, when he was nine years old, okay? And I'm just going to go through this very quickly. In the first um, section, we learn that Nancy is pregnant, that Mr. Um, Stavall, who is a banker, and also the town um, deacon, the church deacon, um, had sex with her. She's carrying a child and in the middle of town when she passes him, she asks him why he isn't paying her and he's so humiliated he kicks her. She ends up, she ends up being taken to jail. Not Stavall. So immediately we're, we're given a sense of um, the effects of racism or, or slavery, the, the prejudice. Um, that she's being taken to jail. You know that she'll try to hang herself and it won't work. She's pregnant, um, she goes home, and Dilsey is sick and she comes to um, take her place. Um, Dilsey comes back and um, Nancy has to um, take her place back in her own home. But she's afraid to go there, you know, because she's convinced that um, Jesus, her lover, will kill her because she's pregnant. So it's his way of getting back at her because the fruit of her vine was not him. Um, and most of the story, you know, takes place when the kids are persuaded by Nancy to take, go home with her because she says, we're going to have fun. And she says, don't tell your mother because her mother and father wouldn't permit it. But the kids go off with Nancy. And what we get then is this exchange between um, the kids and her. I just want to read some of um, on page um, four. 
The father's trying to persuade Nancy to go to a relative, but she won't do it. And he keeps using words that are, for the most part, innocent, but the kids don't understand them. So one of the tensions in the movie um, is, is conducted between the innocence of the kids, that they're not following what's going on, and what's going on with adults. Um, Candy keeps telling Jason that he's a scaredy cat, and he says he's not scared. This is the bottom of her four. I wasn't scared, Jason said. If you'd behave yourself, you'd have kept out of it, father said, but it's all right now. He's probably in St. Louis now, probably got another wife by now and forgot all about you. If he has, I better not find out about it, Nancy said. I'd stand right there over them, and every time he wrapped her, I'd cut that arm off. I'd cut his head off, and I'd slit her belly, and I'd shove, hush, father said. Slit whose belly, Nancy, Caddy said. I wasn't scared, Jason said. I walked right down this lane by myself. Excuse me. Yeah, Caddy said, you wouldn't dare to put your foot down. We're not here too. Dilsey's sick. Nancy takes her place for a while. And there's this description of her on five towards the bottom. We spread the pallet in our room after the light in Mother's room went off. We could see Nancy's eyes again. Nancy, Caddy whispered, are you asleep, Nancy? Nancy whispered something. It was oh or no, I don't know which. Like nobody had made it. Like it came from nowhere and went nowhere until it was like Nancy was on my eyeballs, like the sun does when you've closed your eyes and there's no sun. Now hold on to these descriptions, this one and another one that I'll read in a moment. What, what, how do we characterize Nancy as a human being? Um, Nancy convinces the kids to go. Um, Jason says on page six, uh, I ain't a nigger, Jason said. Are you a nigger, Nancy? I hell-born child, Nancy said. I won't be nothing soon. I go on back to where I come from. There's a strong sense of superstition, Calvinistic superstition. The damnation, it's like it calls her. Repeatedly she is resigned to things. Um, The kids end up going to Nancy's place and you know that she says they're going to have fun. She tries reading a story. Um, it doesn't work and then she um, bribes them with popcorn. She brings it out. She ends up burning her hand on the lamp and then I think again adds to the burn when the, um, Jason loses the popcorn thing and they have to pull it out of the fire and then try to um, take the, 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 what do you call it, the crust off the popcorn. Um, bottom of 10, um, Jason started to cry because he got smoke in his eyes. Hush, he said, hush, but he didn't hush. Caddy took the pepper out of the fire. It's burned up, she said. You have to get some more popcorn, Nancy. You put all of it in, Nancy said. Yes, Caddy. Um, go down on 11. Haven't you got any more, Caddy said. Yes, Nancy said. Yes, look, this here ain't burnt. She starts to peel it. Um, then Nancy began to make that sound again, not loud, sitting there above the fire, her long hands dangling between her knees. All of a sudden, water began to come out of her face in big drops, running down her face, carrying in each one a little turning ball of firelight, like a spark until it dropped off her chin. She's not crying, I said. I ain't crying, Nancy said. Her eyes were closed. I ain't crying. Who is it? I don't know, Caddy said. The father comes, and you know that he... Um, He's preparing to take the kids home. 
Nancy is convinced. She says at the bottom 11, I got the sign, Nancy said. What sign? I got it. It was on the table when I come. It was a hog bone with blood meat still on it, laying by the lamp. He's out there when you all walk out. It's hard not to believe her at this point, that um, even if everybody thinks um, she doesn't know what she's doing, she's making it up, she's being too sensitive, there's this evidence that leaves us wondering. Um, um, he's out there, she says, you all walk out that door, I'm gone. Gone where, Nancy, Caddy said. I'm not a tattletale, Jason said. Nonsense, Father said. He's out there, Nancy. He's looking through that window this minute, waiting for you all to go. Then I'm gone. Nonsense, Father said. Lock up your house. Um, she says a few lines below, putting it off won't do no good. Then what do you want to do, Father said. I don't know, Nancy said. I can't do nothing. Just put it off. And that that don't do no good. I reckon it belonged to me. I reckon what I'm going to get ain't no more than mine. So at this point, she's taking it on herself. Um, Nancy keeps saying it's not going to do any good, um, whatever they do now. It's like, she, at this point, she's completely resigned. So she's not even pushing the kids to stay or... Um, Hush, Father said, lock the door and put out the lamp and go to bed. I scared of the dark, Nancy said. I scared of it for it to happen in the dark. Go down, she says she's got money, coffin money prepared, so she's accepting it. Go to section six at the very end. They leave and they're walking through the ditch where Nancy thought Jesus was hiding. He's not there, Father said. He went away a long time ago. You made me come, Jason said, high against the sky. He's on his father's shoulder. A little one like a big one. I didn't want to. We went up out of the ditch. Look at the simplicity of Faulkner's language. He's not, writing, he's not writing a sentence a sixth grader couldn't write. I hope, I hope that's clear. Every one of these sentences is a sentence a sixth grader could produce. They're absolutely simple, straightforward, declarative sentences. We went up out of the ditch. We could still see Nancy's house in the open door, but we couldn't see Nancy now sitting before the fire. I'm, by the way, I'm saying that because being a writer doesn't mean writing a lot, using a lot of intellectual words. A good writer means seeing something and having the courage somehow to get that off reality onto a page. Um, we couldn't see Nancy now sitting before the fire with the door open because she was tired. I just got tired, she said. I'm just a nigger. It ain't no fault of mine. But we could hear because she began just after we came up out of the ditch. The sound that was not singing nor not unsinging. Who will do our washing now, Father? I said. I'm not a nigger, Jason says. You're worse, Caddy. You're a tattletale. Um, if something were to jump out, you'd be scareder than a nigger. I wouldn't, Jason said. You'd cry, Caddy said. Caddy, Father said. I wouldn't, Jason said. Scaredy cat, Caddy said. Candace, Father said, and that's the end. Um, just for a minute before, we, before I put these questions to you. Um, section three on page six, I, I didn't want to overlook this um, in, in just keeping the kids before us. It begins, she began to drink the coffee while she was drinking, holding the cup in both hands. She began to make the sound again. Her eyes looked at us. She sat there looking at us across the wet cup, making the sound. Look at Nancy, Jason said. Nancy can't cook for us now. Dilsey got well now. The cruelty of that remark, I mean, I don't know, but it's just, you know, it. He's not trying. It's the innocence of a kid, but it's a really cruel mark. And 
it's a cruelty that he's on the edge of very often. So the Jason that we see in Sound of the Fury is no accident. We're already watching the beginnings of everything we see. But anyway, let me stop. What here, because I've only got a few questions. What's at the center of this work? You know that I've been saying from the beginning, the most important thing for us is to see the whole of a thing. The whole thing. Because it's the whole that throws a light on all the parts. What's at the center of this story? That, and by the way, That Evening Sun is taken from uh, Negro Spirituals. I think Louis Armstrong had a song that I gave it in the notes. You've got it. So it's taken from a blues song. And it, in one sense, it's the signal, because in the actual line from the song, it's um, because after the sun goes down, it's dark. So in terms of the story, this is about a family dying. The sun's going out. This is like Ahab. Remember in the Ahab, the sunset chapter, when Ahab, the sun was going down and he commits himself to damnation? This is like the sun's going out. It's going down. So it's a story about a decline and a loss that's a death that's imminent. What's at the center of the story? What's at the center of the story? Yep, there's this awful demeaning condescension. Even the father taking care of her, it's, I mean, there's this class difference. What happens with um, the banker, the deacon, you know, that he has sex with her, and she's put in jail, and she's pregnant, and he goes free. And the last thing we hear of him is sneaking around back alleys at night. I, <laughs> I think we're clear on what he's doing, but go ahead. What's at the center of this? Say it again, it's what? Isolation. Isolation. People because she's so scared, she needs help. And um, nobody's really paying attention to what she needs. For different things, maybe because of racism. You know, yeah. the mother doesn't want the kids anything. And it seems the only one of the kids really is attuned with her. She's, like, she's a young kid, she cannot do much. And nobody else is doing anything. Yeah, the mother's only concern is to say to the father, you're going to leave me here while you take these kids home for a nigger? I mean, her whining, manipulative, you know, character is, you can't miss it. Um, what else? Well, and the kid who keeps saying, I'm not a nigger, I'm not a nigger, mm -hmm. I'm not a nigger. Yeah, you know, like that was just the ultimate, ultimate. Degradation, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of strange, not strange, but the children always wanted to be with her. Mm -hmm. Even Quentin, they went to her house. But immediately, uh, Jason says, I want to go home. When the story doesn't work out, again and again and again. He, he, he doesn't miss an instance when something doesn't go his way when he says, I want to go home. Yeah. He's just a big whiner. God. What? He's five. But, what? Right, he's so, five but <laughs> oh, I'm not going to pass that off. Five. God. He's easily That's where it starts. That's where it starts when they're five. He knows how to get what he wants, and you know, when he's teasing for a chocolate cake, it's just, yeah, kind of disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a manipulative mother, and he oh. does very well. Yes. Yeah, good. 
give an instance of, you're talking about Jason. Jason. Give an instance of his manipulation. Well, just what you, what we've been talking about. He, he says he doesn't want to be left behind. He wants to go too. But then when he gets there, he doesn't get what he wants. It's not going to be fun. It all has to go his way or he will whine. Um, what's at the bottom of this, what we're talking about right now? Because in my mind, it's the center. It's, I mean, isolation, racism, it's all there. Fear, injustice. This has to do with two peoples. A relationship. What's at the what? What are we? What's at the bottom of the of what's going on with Jason right now and what we're describing? What's the cause of it? Slavery. Don't say five. <laughs> huh? Slavery. Slavery. It seems to me what Faulkner is doing. And wait, wait. By the way, when you come to the end of this, are you uplifted? No. It's a depressing story. I would say. What? Yeah, but wait, hold off on that. When you get to the end, is anybody, does, is there anybody here who just didn't feel sort of depressed? There's nobody there, there's nobody there to clean it up. There's nobody there to make it nice. It's not a Jane Austen ending. We're left in the middle of this awful predicament. That's where we're dropped off. Nothing in the narrative cleans it up. It's a dark, dark story. And I think the, the pro you want to go ahead, Mary Jo, with the Protestant thing? Yeah, it's, just, Ooh, God. it's the self, you know, the self dying, the family dying, and it's, it's a real statement of Protestantism. I think it's particularly present in the mom, but it seems to me what's at the heart of this movie is, or story, sorry, is slavery and its enabling effects. You introduce slavery into the world and it gives everybody in that relationship a means of bribery, bargaining, blackmail. What it does is call forth every, in an enabling family, it calls for every ne negative thing. If I don't get my way and I'm entitled to this. I mean, it shows in everything Jason does, it shows in everything Candace does. They're spoiled, enabled kids. Because if you, have, if you have a servant doing everything for you and you reach a point where you think you deserve all of this, what motive won't you give in to? Blackmail, manipulation, bribe, whining to get what you want. It's stunning because what he's doing is showing the consequences of slavery and add to it, a, a pro, which I think Protestant also is a, to me an enabling. But at the center of it, it's slavery. It's what goes on with Nancy and these kids. They use her, she uses them, they bribe her, they manipulate her, she cajoles them. I mean, ev everything, I don't like that word, but everything that the modern world calls dysfunctional, I hate that word. But it's here. It's petty meanness, manipulating, using, bribing. Um, Jason will do it if he gets what he wants, so it gives the slave a motive for doing something he wants when she shouldn't. And the father's sort of standing back while it's all happening and the mother is whining about it all so for me it's so he's written the sound of the fury which is it's extraordinary no, I really would urge you guys to to get it and read it particularly the Jason thing I mean the Benji thing here he's going back in that evening sun to the time when they were kids 
And it's like we're watching the beginning of things and if we've read Sound of the Fury, we'll know where they're going. But you don't have to go there. If you're watching this kid, you know exactly how Jason's going to grow up. You know exactly what's going to happen to Caddy. There's only one figure who's a rock. It's Dilsey. She's black, she's a woman, and she's a servant. And she's absolutely rock solid. In Sound of the Fury, Benji, Quentin committing suicide, Jason stealing, and Dilsey. She takes Benji to church, and the two sit in this Easter. It opens with some Christmas things. Most readers are not, most critics just ignore them. It opens with Christmas sort of seasons, illusion. It ends at Easter, the resurrection. And Dilsey is at the heart of that. She's black. She's a servant. She serves. She Does serves. In Sound of the Fury? She's gone. Gone. I don't remember her in Sound of the Fury at all. That's interesting. I don't remember her at all. Remember, this is 15 years ago. We don't know. I don't know that we know what happened to her. But I, th I, want, I really want to leave everybody with that. What Faulkner is doing is showing the consequences of slavery. That a slavery situation is, creates an in, um, what's enabling both sides. It hurts the blacks. It corrupts the family. Both sides are crippled by that fact. And Faulkner, I've talked about this before, every writer after this, in the South, in the Civil War, came to the sense that there was a great sin in the South and it's what made them self-conscious and what made them able to produce this extraordinary body of literature that you don't find in the North. All these women writers, Southern. Faulkner, Southern. Twain, Southern. Go where you will. All of them, Southern. It's an agrarian culture taken over by a, a northern industri industrial world. And it, it, it gave a tremendous kind of self-awareness to these people. And they produced this amazing literature. And we're going to read another one, um, Firing Judas, in just a second. Could I clarify something? Yeah, Mike. Uh, we're talking a lot about slavery, but the, the setting for this story is post Slavery. Right. This is, this is uh, a society that's living with the legacy of slavery. Right. Jim Crow society. Yeah. And, yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Sure. But Nancy's still a slave. She's a servant and she's a yeah. nigger. You know, all that um, Anna still talked a, about. Still a second class citizen. Yeah, subhuman. Yeah. Other than that attitude still carries over. Even though it's not, you know, the father doesn't formally. I mean, he seems like a decent father, but there's this clear class distinction that's every, it's internalized in everybody's. Um, you guys, any questions from you guys? I don't want to, I keep, it's a bad habit of mine looking out. You know, the other thing you could do, Melody, you could actually come here every week. Yeah. I mean, she made excuses for her bad behavior. She said uh, she couldn't tell a white man she couldn't come into her home. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you almost makes it sound like she's been 
raped or abused, but then she demanded money from him publicly. And it just, you know, she brought the kids into this dangerous situation. Um, yeah. You know, because she just kept making excuses, believing that she wasn't. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't capable of. Yeah. Of being a good person, and that's why it's nice to see Dilsey in there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I want to underscore, um, I, you know, in in the last stories we did by the by uh, Eudora Welty, the, we I encourage you to think about them as cautionary tales. They're just they're, you know, they're not very flattering views of women, um, but there's nothing dark in them like this. And in this story, um, I think Faulkner is in that generation with Hemingway, that lost generation where the naturalistic um, convention, naturalism, which was a product of the sciences, held sway with writers. So his leaving it like this is no accident. But remember this, even, even though he leaves it in a, with a dark ending, he could not have told that story as beautifully as he did if he didn't have a purpose. I mean, he shows quite clearly the effects of slavery, the consequences. You can't miss it. So I want to say, even, even though it's in that naturalistic tradition, it's dark, there's nothing supernatural to come in and save anybody. It belongs to that naturalistic tradition. I want everybody to hear that. He has a sense of something there, or he couldn't have told the story to reveal the horrors of this. So I want to say that the truthfulness of the story is its own vindication. It leaves us profoundly aware, affected by what we're seeing. He, wait, he was that good a writer. Is everybody following? Is the name Jesus significant? You say. You tell me. <laughs> uh, that's what I was struggling with. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's, it's like Alexa's question about, you know, the, pet, or the rapes. I mean, what can you do except wonder about it, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's true to say that there were more than a few men named Jesus Go at ahead. that time, so it's not, you know. Okay, we've got to get to this flowering Judas. Or any other comments on that evening sun? It's showing the horrible effects of slavery, and I want to take it a step farther. It's showing the horrible effects when one person raises himself above another. If that becomes a fixed condition, it can be in a marriage, it can be in a family, it can be in a, it can be in a nation. Because you, you can watch something like the quota system reverse slavery and create the same enabling conditions. I hope that was clear. So it's, it's about slavery. But it, it, there's something so universal about this, watching it, that in any, in any, in any enabling situation, in a marriage, in a family, there's something to deal with. The answer can't be to run it away or, you know, or whatever. I mean, or maybe it is. I mean, the, you know, the Catholic Church holds us to marriage and it makes a place for annulments because they're needed. What am I missing here? What does she do? And you didn't bring me any. God! Discrimination anywhere is bad. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Come on, let's do Fairlane Judas. 
Um, this is an extraordinary. You got. I hope you all got my question because I'm going to try to shorten it. I want to get to that question because it's. You know that Laura is a young woman. She's um, young, beautiful. Um, she's committed to what she's doing. She came to Mexico to enlist in a cause she believed in. It's a socialistic movement. It's an uprising against the landed aristocracy and the government to overthrow abuses. She came into it full of ideals, however many years earlier that was. So we're brought into the story in, in medias race, in the midst of things. She comes home after a day of work, she teaches, she teaches kids school, and she delivers messages to the rebels. So she knows she's got to be careful because there are spies, somebody can catch her, and she takes drugs to the prisoners, and that's going to be a major factor in what happens in the story. Reggiani sits heaped upon the edge of a straight-backed chair, much too small for him, and sings to Laura in a furry, mournful voice. Laura has begun to find reasons for avoiding her own house till the latest possible moment for Bragioni is there almost every night. No matter how late she is, he will be sitting there with a surly waiting expression, pulling as his linky yellow hair, thumbing the strings of his guitar, snarling a tune under his breath. Lupi, the Indian maid, meets Laura at the door and says, with a flicker of a glance towards the upper room, he waits. So she goes up there so much of the story is told in the present tense of the sorts of things that make up her round of activities. And Bragiotti's place of, he's the leader of this revolt. It's in the, by the way, it's in the town, or, you know, or she tells him to go kill somebody in the town in which Zapata, who was a leader, one of the leaders of the revolution, was born. Um, go down on the first page. I'm going to just try to read through some of the stuff quickly. Um, she rests her eyes on the printed pages when the sight and sound of Bragioni singing threatened to identify themselves with all her remembered afflictions and to add their weight to her uneasy, uneasy premonitions of the future. The gluttonous bolt of Bragioni has become a symbol of her many disillusions. For a revolution, it should be lean, animated by a heroic faith, a vessel of abstract virtues. This is nonsense, she knows it now, and is ashamed of it. Revolution must have leaders, and leadership is a career for energetic men. He's self-indulgent, he's powerful, he's spoiled, he um, loves himself. This is the leader of a revolution. So everything that she came to give her life for has been fading. So she's been living with disillusions. And I want to put this more broadly, I want to, if I can for a moment. Think of any young man starting out in a career, want to be a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, whatever he did, reaching a point in his life where he's completely disillusioned by what he does, what that does to him at whatever point that comes to him. But almost all of us, I will say, if I'm, it's a generalization, Almost all of us reach points where we become disillusioned with the lives we've committed ourselves to. Okay? This is especially important because she committed herself to a revolution in which men are sacrificing their lives. Okay? So it's deepened her sense. Now, one of the things that's interesting is all these descriptions, like the one I just read, they're all about something outside of her, but they all tend to reflect a color on her. A note of disillusionment or defeat or 
discrepancy, mostly disillusionment. Boy, that's wonderful music. Um, the glutton bulk of Bragioni has become a symbol of her many disillusions for a revolution. I just read that. She almost, uh, she's almost too willing to say, I'm wrong. I suppose they don't really understand the principles. And afterwards, she makes a secret truce with herself, determined not to surrender her will to such expedient logic. But she cannot help feeling that she's been betrayed irreparably by the disunion between her way of living and her feeling of what life should be. So things are not what she had wanted them to be. Now she longs to fly out of this room, down the narrow stairs, into the street where the houses lean together like conspirators. This is what I mean. Do you see the description? It's like conspirators under a single model lamp and leave Bragioni's. Is everybody aware? She describes external events, but very often in terms of something internal to herself. Go down. Next paragraph, she was born Roman Catholic, and in spite of her fear of being seen by somebody who might make a scandal of it, she slips now and again into some crumbling little church, kneels on the chilly stone and says a Hail Mary. Um, it's no good, and she ends by examining the altar, um, feels um, tender about the um, battered doll shape of some male saint whose white lace-trimmed drawers hang limply about his ankles below the hierarchy dignity of his velvet robe. She has encased herself in a set of principles derived from her early training, leaving no detail of gesture. Boy, does this go to your question, Michelle. What do you do? So she has this Catholic background. She's encased her set in principles she derived from her early life, leaving no detail of gesture or of personal taste untouched. And for this reason, she will not wear lace made on machines. This is her <coughs> private heresy. For in her special group, the machine is sacred. You know, it's an image of progress for the workers. She loves fine lace, and there is a tiny edge of fluted cobweb on this collar, which is one of 20 precisely alike, folded in blue tissue paper in the upper drawer of her chest. Um, Bregioni describes his taste for fine things, and he says, um, next paragraph down, I'm disappointed in everything as it comes, everything. He shakes his head. You poor thing, you will be disappointed too. You are born for it. We are more alike than you realize in some things. Wait and see. Someday you will remember what I've told you. You will know that Bregioni was your friend. He's saying they're alike in lots of ways. She looks at him as being completely different in some ways. Go down. It may be true I'm as corrupt in another way as Bragioni. She thinks in spite of herself, as callous, as incomplete. And if this is so, any kind of death seems preferable. That's how much she hates him. She sits quietly. She does not run. Where could she go? Uninvited, she has promised herself to this place. She can no longer imagine herself as living in another country. Go down. Um, it describes her taking food and drugs to the prisoners. Um, she mentions Eugenio um, at the bottom of page three. Um, Tonight will be really night for you, and though her Spanish amuses them, they find her comforting, useful. If they lose patience and all faith and curse the slowness of their friends in coming to their rescue with money and influence, they trust her not to repeat everything. And even and if she inquires, where do you think you can find money or influence? They are certain to answer, where there's Bragioni. Why doesn't he do something? So all of these men are waiting for this hero that they've put on this pedestal 
to come save them. So meanwhile, mean, as the revolution goes on, men are dying, people are imprisoned, and some of them are waiting for Bragioni. Um, go down on page four, middle of the page. It describes her brief experiences with two men who wanted to court her. Um, and notice the tense change. Um, middle of four, a young captain who had been a soldier in Zapata's army attempted during a horseback ride near Cuernavaca to express his desire for her with no... Remember, they're going to go horseback riding, she gets on the horse, he's about ready to get on his, and as he helps her up, the horse seems to bolt. At breakfast, he came to her table in, fruit, um, in full caro dress, gray buckspin jacket, trousers with strings of silver buttons down the leg, and he was in a humorous, careless mood. May I sit with you? And you are a wonderful writer. I was terrified that you might be thrown and dragged. I should never have forgiven myself, but I cannot admire enough. We know that she spurred the horse. The horse. It was her way of getting away from him. Um, um, we're told of another affair, another guy who pursued her, and it's told in the past tense. She's going back to what has happened. Page five. Um, um, she's talking about this captain, I think it's the second one, who tried to woo her. Now, Laura is accustomed to him. It means nothing except that he is 19 years old and is observing a convention with all propriety. Go down. She tells herself that throwing the flower was a mistake. The woman told her to throw a flower and get rid of the kid. For she's 22 years old and knows better, but she refuses to regret it, persuades herself that her negation of all external events as they occur is a sign that she is gradually perfecting herself in the stoicism she strives to cultivate against that disaster she fears, though she cannot name it. Go down. Um, she's not at home in the world. Everything's a stranger to her in the middle of the next paragraph, no matter what this stranger says to her, the strangers that she meets everywhere, nor what her message to him, the very cells of her flesh reject knowledge and kinship in one monotonous word. No, no, no. She draws her strength from this one holy talismanic word, which does not suffer her to be led into evil. Denying everything, she may walk anywhere in, this, in safety. She looks at everything without amazement. No repeats this firm and changing voice. Um, let me go to the end, because I want to leave us time. Bragioni Lee, now, and remember, every one of the passages describing his playing the guitar is he strangles it, he squeezes it, he chokes it, suffocates it, whatever these things are. What is that, not now, what is that guitar and what does her descriptions of that music say about him? Just hold on to that for a second. He leaves. He goes home. His wife is involved in the revolution. She supports him. She has her own chores. When he comes home, she's in tears. And um, she ends up apologizing for him as if she shouldn't be crying, making life hard for him. Um, go down. Um, we're still at, sorry, we're still at Laura's before he leaves. Bragioni says, are you going to sleep? Almost before she can shake her head, he begins to tell her about May Day disturbances coming in Morelia. That's 
the place where Zapata was born. For the Catholics hold a festival in honor. And we're told that there will be two processions, one by the Catholics and one by the socialists. So two very different groups are marching towards the center of town. So in one way they image what's at the stake at the bottom of this revolution. He says, are you, go down a few lines, are you in love with someone? No, says Laura, and no one is in love with you? No, then it's your own fault. No woman need go begging. Why, what's the matter with you? The legless beggar woman in the Alameda has a perfectly faithful lover. Do you know that? Laura peers, peers down the pistol barrel and says nothing. Um, <laughs> Bragiona curves his swollen fingers around the throat of the guitar and softly smothers the music. I mean, we keep getting that. He leaves. And jo oh, sorry, just before he leaves, she mentions that she'd seen um, Eugenio um, and seems upset because of the condition he was in when um, she left on page eight at the top. Today I found Eugenio going into a stupor. He refused to allow me to call the prison doctor. He had taken all the tablets I brought him yesterday. He said that he took them because he was bored. He's a fool and his death is his own business, says Bragioni, fastening his belt. So this is the revolution. What Porter is doing is uncovering the ideals and showing us realities beneath them, and all the realities are ugly. This is the leader. She cares for this kid who's dying. She's bringing drugs to try to help. And Bragioni cares nothing for him. Just like other, he can die, it's just one more death for him. Um, he's a fool and his death is his own business, says Bragioni, fastening his belt here. I told him if he had waited only a little while longer, he would have got him free, says Laura. He said he did not want to wait. He's a fool and we are well rid, rid of him. Um, she knows she won't see him for a while, but she goes on. Um, at the bottom of eight, um, he's gone. He, um, he returned to his wife. She's at his knees, washing his feet, much like the woman washing the feet of Christ. So much of this is put in Christ language, as if he's a Christ figure, because remember, in the earlier part of the um, story, it talks about him as a world savior that the leaders of revolutions stand in the place of Christ. They're gonna bring salvation to these people who are looking for salvation. So they look up to him like God. On page six in the middle of the page. Not for nothing has Bragioni taken pains to be a good revolution and a professional lover of humanity. He will never die of it. He has the malice, the cleverness, the wickedness, the sharpness of wit, the hardness of heart stipulated for loving the world profitably. He will never die of it. Christ died. He will live to see himself kicked out from his feeding trough by other hungry world saviors. So we're meant to see Ragioni as a Messiah figure, a world savior. People look to him as a Christ figure. It's reinforced when we see his wife um, in tears washing his feet. Ah, yes, I'm hungry, I'm tired, let us eat something together. They're ending eating. The dream's gonna end with eating. He says between sobs, his wife leans her head on his arm and says, forgive me, it's the words we put to Christ. And this time he's refreshed by the solemn, endless rain of her tears. Now this is the end of the movie, or I mean the end, sorry, the story. 
or takes off her serge dress and puts on a white linen nightgown and goes to bed. She turns her head a little to one side and lying still remains, reminds herself that it is time to sleep. Numbers tick in her brain like little clocks, soundless doors close of themselves around, close of themselves around her. If you would sleep, you must not remember anything the children will say tomorrow. Good morning, my teacher, the poor prisoners who come every day bringing flowers to their jailer. One, two, three, four, five. It is monstrous to confuse love with revolution, night with day, light with death. Ah, Eugenio. The toiling of the midnight bell is a signal we're still all in present tense. The only time we've gone into past tense is when she described those episodes with her lover. So hold on to that. Is everybody clear? This is so important. And you could miss it. And it's absolutely crucial. Get up, Laura, and follow me. Come out of your sleep, out of your bed, out of this strange house. What are you doing in this house? Without a word, without fear, she rose and reached for Eugenie's hand, past tense. But he eluded her with a sharp, sly smile and drifted away. This is not all. You shall see, murderer, he said. Follow me. I will show you a new country. Remember, the whole revolution is to produce a new city, a new country. But it's far away, and we must hurry. No, said Laura, not unless you take my hand. No. And she clung first to the stair rail, and then to the topmost branch of the Judas tree that bent down slowly and set her upon the earth, and then to the rocky ledge of a cliff, and then to the jagged wave of a sea that was not water, but a desert of crumbling stone. This is a repetition of the description God of a, an apocalyptic moment when everything was crumbling to stone in the middle of the story. <coughs> it was not water, <coughs> but a desert of crumbling stone. Where are you taking me? She asked in wonder, but without fear. To death, and it is a long way off, and we must hurry, said Eugenio. No, said Laura, not unless you take my hand. Then eat these flowers, poor prisoners, said Eugenio in a voice of pity. Take and eat. And from the Judas tree, he stripped the warm, bleeding flowers and held them to her lips. She saw that his hand was fleshless, a cluster of small, white, petrified branches, and his eye sockets were without light. But she ate the flowers greedily, for they satisfied both hunger and thirst. Murder, said Eugenio, and cannibal. This is my body and my blood. Laura cried, no, and at the sound of her voice, her own voice, she awoke, past tense, trembling, and was afraid, past tense, to sleep again. This is written by a woman. Okay, don't forget that. Okay, two, uh, just two main questions, because the first question is, um, how would you describe Laura up to the dream, and why the present tense, and why does, why does Porter... I, maybe I should, I mean, that's my real question, if you want to deal with it now. But characterize, no, let's, let's wait. Characterize Laura up to the dream. Leave, leave the tense out. Characterize Laura up to the dream. How would you characterize her as a woman? I would be glad. She's looking for something. She's left what she knows to go to a different country um, and, to, and to support an ideology that is not what she's used to, so she's, she's, she's looking for Thanks. something that would fulfill her, I think. 
she found it in here. I mean, she thought she would find it in there, but apparently not. But she's still doing what she's supposed to do. So some duty also, you know, like following the duty that... I'm holding my tongue here because I'm just, I don't want to deal with the dream right now. I felt like she was not, uh, maybe it began as uh, pursuing her ideals and a sense of duty, but then she became uh, trapped by the revolution and with, although she does say that she couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Trapped is a really important word, and it's one in the story, so. Um, anybody else? This is an extraordinary story. Extraordinary story. Say it start, sir. She's make, hiding all the qualities that make her a woman. Oh, that make her a woman. And she's being a, a man because she's a spy. She's going from house to house. She's wow. visiting the prisoners. So she's kind of lost her identity. Yeah, I agree with Mary. That's she struck me as being very unfeminine. Wait, wait. Can you guys be careful of each other? Because I don't. Go ahead. Alexi, go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with Mary. She struck me as being very unfeminine because she's committed to this intellectual ideal, this ideology, but she lacks relationship. And here it says she does. She's not even at home in her own body. She doesn't even connect with the children she teaches. There's no maternal, like there's no, there's no emotional connection or relationship in her life at all. And so it almost feels like, and she's kind of hovering on the edge between life and death, and it's almost as if she doesn't even care. She's cultivating the stoicism, this detachedness yeah, yeah. reality. Mary Jo, go ahead. You know, I just totally agree with the stoicism. That's interesting because for a young lady at that time to go and do that, especially beautiful, to leave everything behind and to go Remember, it's a socialist revolution. I, I'm sort of laughing. Name, name women figures in Congress who are pushing towards a socialist agenda. I don't, I don't want to go there. But just keep it, keep in mind how relevant this is. Would you? That this is, this is written a hundred years ago, but, yeah. but how relevant it is. To anyway, anybody else on, on Laura before the dream? Sorry. She's kind of betraying her Catholicism. In what way? She goes to pray and she can't do it. Thanks, Doc. Thanks. She can't. Yeah. She can't follow through. And the whole movement is anti-Catholic, right? You could get, you could be executed for, or imprisoned for going to a church. Can you flesh that out at all? Because there's a real truth in that. I tried to suggest something in that, but in my notes, but it's, can you add anything to that? I mean, it's a good point. Right, because the the clergy was associated with the um, the gentry or whatever that were exploiting the poor. Mm -hmm. So you have all kinds of difficult conflicts here. You know, the social justice aspect of the church in Mexico is not very prominent, and so they got lumped in with the aristocrats, whatever, the rebellion, and then there was a counter rebellion that was in defense of the church and so it's back and forth and so you know when you read um, Graham Greene you know and his whiskey priests and 
that it just reminded me of that particular thing. yeah it's terribly complex because the church as much as it was identified with the government and the landowning class, it didn't. I mean, it, was, it would identified itself with everybody, but the major interest in political power rested there. So, um, but it's terribly complex. I mean, it is deeply. It also sets it apart that there's going to be this procession. I don't remember talking about it. One group is coming right. the other way, and the other group, right. the, the group are the socialists coming right. the other way. So right. it's, it's not clear, you know, how much they really... And what's going to happen when they meet? <laughs> By the way, I, I didn't read it, but I, if you go back over it, be sure to look closely at that description of the apocalypse with everything crumbling. Because I think that's sort of an image, a, um, a prophetic image of the end of it all. But anyway, anything else about Laura before we tackle this tense issue? She loves, the children love her, but she doesn't love them. Same with, kind of with Virginia. Virginio. I mean, Eugenio? Who, sorry. Bragioni. Oh, Bragioni. Yeah. He, he wants her, and she's not interested. Yeah. Um, they all want her to tell the secrets to other places, but she won't. So she's not on her own. She's not really. Well, I think what she's trying to say. Who's trying? The author or Laura? Oh, oh. It's all about betrayal. I mean, this is the title, the, the story, the Judas, the word, Judas hung himself yeah. betraying Christ. And so she's betraying everything she believes in. What? She believes the revolution, her faith. She makes fun of the kids. I mean, everything. So she just shuts down emotionally because she doesn't want to go there. When she goes to bed, all the the walls just close in on her. So she's just shutting down emotionally. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's all about betrayal. I don't. I have a hard time thinking Virginia over what is a Christ-like figure, too. I think he's just the opposite. I think that's the the parody that. She's, playing, she's expecting us to pick up, like in um, Eudora Weltier, you know, that there's a parodic aspect, that it's a parody of Christ, that he's a world leader, a savior, a messiah figure. She's washing feet. And that's the same thing with the ending. I think it's, you're supposed to think it's a Christ-like figure, you know, hunger and thirst, eat my body, you know, and it's all, it's an evil person coming to take her. Somewhere she doesn't want to go. Or is she the evil right. person? Go, why do you say right? He's accusing her because she's bringing him drugs, and then it's kind of flipped as to symbolize the Eucharist, satisfies, you know, your hunger and thirst. And Who's the Judas figure here? You, um, Eugenie or Gloria? She was. Yeah. Because he calls her a murderer and a cannibal. Yeah. But in she's, the end, she has a choice. No. Let's 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 go there. Let's go there. Why does Porter? Is everybody following the tenses? When you read this and read it again, when you read it, I, I had a feeling this time that I I've had it before, but I don't think I had it as sharply as I did this time. Bragioni sits heaped upon the edge. Laura says, "Sing then." Bragioni loves himself. She knows every almost every paragraph ends. I mean, d develops in the present tense. Okay. 
What's the effect of that? Wait, most novels, most stories are told in what's called the preterite, the past tense. Every novel is, almost every novel is presented in the past tense as a completed action. It took, it was accomplished, took place in the past. Um, Catherine Ann Porter would have known that. She's a good writer. Yeah? She doesn't do that. Everything she writes is in the present tense. And my question to you, and it's just such a subtle one, I, I gotta ask it. Instead, she looks at Bragioni, frankly, Bragioni catches her glance when she stretches, and it's just, it's all present tense. When you read a story, ordinarily it's the Preterite, the past tense, it's accomplished, it's done. When you read a story like this in the present tense, what feeling does it leave you with? Like it's a movie? Huh? Like a movie that you're watching? It's just kind of ongoing. It's open, you're experiencing it with the character in real time. I, I think she's, she's living it right now, very quickly in her mind. Like thinking about a party you went to, you can take a, think about the whole two party, whole two hour party in one, 30 seconds. So I think she's mulling over this entire thing let me put it let me put it this sorry this is good I, I think this is extraordinary what she's doing particularly in the context of the story and every other story in the preterite tense something's accomplished it's done is there ever anything in this story accomplished or is she stuck in a present tense yes. we're we're reading a story about the living dead as much as it may be alive in the way that she presents it, by putting in the press tense, Suzanne's description was it's flat, it's Maya's, it's eerie, it's just, it's not, it doesn't go anywhere. She's stuck, now I'm gonna put this to you guys because this is scary to me. How many people commit themselves to something in their lives and live it and reach a point of disillusionment and stay there? The living dead. Wait, the, the problem with Laura is she has not learned to love. Flat out. She came to this revolution to give herself in love to a cause, an ideal. And there's nothing that she does that puts her life at risk. And at the very end she has this dream, and it, I hope everybody, the dream is in the unconscious, it's the soul speaking, it's, or call it the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call This is a damning, this is an indictment. Eugenio comes to her and says, murderer. She's a Christ betrayer. She's taken the Eucharist and um, turned it around. The present tense gives us this eerie feeling that it's the way it is every day. It's not going anywhere. It's just stunning. Go back and read this story. It'll leave you with this eerie sense. And then ask yourself of people in our world, ourselves, us, I'm not kidding about in our marriages, in our business. How many men and women get into a business committing themselves because they love this thing and then reach a point where disillusioned? What do you do at that point? Here, now why? And I'm gonna, so are you all with me? Okay, then go with me here now. If you follow that, because I think that's what Porter's pretty clearly doing, what do you do with this? Virginia, Eugenio says, this is not all you shall see, murder, he said, follow me, I will show you a new, a new country. Everything in the revolution was produced 
Christ was to take us to a new country. It's called a new Jerusalem. Our, our, the goal of everything we do is for that. We've left the garden, we're fallen, right? That's our faith. The whole ambition, the, whole, the end of this revolution is a new country. Are they achieving it? Are they getting any closer? You've got prisoners, spies, betrayals, everywhere. Laura, who's a really decent woman, is committed herself to this, and she's going through, she, it's the living dead. She's not moving. She's trapped. Has anybody trapped her? No. This is her choice. So up until this point, up until the dream, I'm saying Porter is showing us a woman who has not learned how to love. She's going through the motion. She's giving herself like she's committed to an ideal in which people are asked to risk their lives. She's going through the motions. It's like the walking dead. It's frightening because she's so beautiful. Wait, wait one sec. Take and eat. He takes from the Judas tree, gives her... Um, but she ate the flowers greedily, for they satisfied both hunger and thirst. Murderer, said Eugenio, and cannibal. This is a Christ act. It's eating. This is my body and my blood. Laura, Laura cried, past tense. No, and at the sound of her voice, she awoke, trembling, and was afraid to sleep again. So here's my question. The whole story is put in the present tense. You're all following that, right? The, important, what she, the amazing thing. It's a feel. It's a strange feel with a tense. You can't put your finger on it. It's an amazing thing. It's, and then we get to the end. She wakes up from the dream, and we're, she comes out of that dream in the past tense. Wait one second, Doc. What do we do with that? How do we understand that moment? If this is a betrayal moment, and it certainly seems like it's a betrayal of Christ. Yeah, it's a revelation. And... But she comes out of it in this past. Are you all? I think this is amazing what she did with tenses. Who's going who's gonna to see this? It's just so subtle. But she comes out in the past tense. What are we to make of this? But she doesn't want to go back to sleep. She wants. I think she just wants to stay in her dead, stuck. She doesn't want to be aware. <sighs> Tough story. Melody, what, how are we to take this ending? It is fiction. What? It is fiction. Oh! Everybody's like, how did it Boy. If this is only fiction, I have no business here. The only, the only reason I'm here is because fiction, fiction is, I'm saying, what's the name of the class? Literature as prophecy. There's a prophetic element here showing us things that we need to pay attention to. Wait one second. Melody, do you have any thoughts about the end? I always have thoughts. Okay, so um, <laughs> toward the end, she says, it is monstrous to confuse love with revolution. So she realized that this ideal of a revolutionary, whatever his name was, was wrong. It, it, she fell in love with an ideal and not a, you know, and she shouldn't have and or she should have made her love real in it, which is another thing. And with day and night with the prisoners, that they were all confused, and life and death. So when she's having this dream about the Eucharist, about taking the Eucharist, and she says no, that's the opposite of what Mary said. Mary said yes to God. 
she said no to God because in a different way, place she said that um, um, denying everything, she may walk anywhere in safety. Um, yeah. So she's she's at this place where she's disillusioned. Um, she doesn't know where to turn, and she's just going to stay in that stagnant place where it's safe and. Um, and, and live her life out there. Yeah, I, and I would only add, except that what she discovers in this moment is that it's not just a matter of living safely in this place, that the implications of what she's done, the way she's lived, involves a betrayal of Christ. She has not loved. This story is a, a story about a, a woman who has not learned to love. And the revelation, she, I'm sorry? Right, 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 right. Any other thoughts or? Oh, Doc and I were talking about this, and I, because I just floored by this, because I, for for me, it, it, I mean, it's obviously about a young woman. She's an activist. I mean, think think about God, God, think about Catholic activists in our church who support revolution in the '60s, particularly '70s when the church was flooded with men and women who were activists, for, and always for social justice. You know, that you've got these causes. But Catherine Ann Porter is showing us a young woman who's an activist involved in a socialist cause, social justice. And the story ends with her discovering that what she's done wasn't just not fulfill love, is that in the way that she dealt with things, she betrayed Christ. So it's not just that she was safe in avoiding problems. Um, by not loving, she betrayed him. When the whole call, I mean, to, to go to, I mean, Melody made a good point. It's, you know, you can go through the motions in a revolution. You can also die for it. I mean, you can be, you can live your Catholic ideals and not die for the wrong reasons. We're going to be facing this, by the way. Burn of the Cathedral is exactly about that. Beckett is going to have to face these tormenting choices to decide whether what he's doing is really for his own glory or whether he's really giving up his life. And here at the end of the story, um, Laura is having this revelation that as a matter of fact, what she's done constitutes a betrayal of Christ. She betrayed Eugenio. So even though she was, thought she was helping him, giving him drugs, this ghostly figure comes to her and says, betrayal, betrayal. So um, it's a frightening story because it seems to me that it, it's in a, a convicting story in the sense that most of us grow up with ideals. I would say most of us have ideals when we're younger. We commit ourselves to a job, a profession. I'm a teacher. People are doctors. People are lawyers. Or You can commit yourself as a mother, a you know, husband, father. But most of us come to a point where we experience disillusionment. We, we realize that what I was fighting for is not what's happening. And changes begin to take place. So it seems to me there's a universal meaning to this story. I don't want to take it out of this context. It's, 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 it's focused on this young woman in a, in a revolution. But I think it has a more universal meaning that most of us have these moments when we're committed to something and we have to reach, a, particularly if we're Christian or Catholic, 
we have to ask whether what we're doing is really in Christ or are we going through the motions and betraying him. Go ahead, at the ending? Or, yeah, go, Doc. I think, I think the dream reveals to her, I mean, it's the no that shocks her awake. Right. And, and she's afraid for the first time, because all the way through the story, she says, you know, she can go anywhere, she doesn't have to be afraid, because she just keeps saying no, no, no. Well, now this no has shocked her awake, and... She doesn't want to go back to sleep. Yeah, she doesn't. See, remember the parable of the the lawyer who came to Christ, asking about salvation, what he had to do, and and Christ told him go and sell everything. And the lawyer went away sad. This is like one of those moments where you get a revelation, and suddenly you're faced with a choice you hadn't confronted before. And I, I think the ending is fairly negative. She wants to go back to sleep. But at least it's wakened her, and we're left wondering. You know, it's a shocking. By the way, this is going to be a lot like Flannery O'Connor's stories, because she's going to leave us with these moments where we're faced with choices. What does Laura do? It's like your question about the boy, or the other ones we asked. What can we say? We, we don't know. What we do know is she's not learned to love, and she's been... She's betrayed Christ. The dream reveals that to her. So she's having to face something she's not faced before. It's an amazing story. Stunning story. Listen, before you go, if you, if you, uh, I, I thought about doing Gerontium. It's T.S. Ellis because he brings in the Judas tree in the poem. It's a difficult, Gerontium means aged. So it's told from the point of view of an aging man, a man who's aged. And it's also about an aging house. It's about the West, us. If you'll hear everything I've been putting together for years, this is about us. We're dying. Um, read that poem and see what you make of it. Um, I, and I'll ask you next week if you want to pick. Can I interject something? Next week, um, it actually is Fat Tuesday. Yes. Do you want to cancel? No. 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 But I'd say, should we do like a dinner? Fat Tuesday. It's Fat Tuesday. Why do I always feel like I'm surrounded by Eves? I'm trying to stop eating, and you guys. Should we do a dinner? No, let's do that. That would be great. You guys want to do that? I'm all for that. Can you eat and, and can we eat and do? Oh God, can we eat and do Flannery O'Connor? Can we do this? I'm so glad you, I'm so glad you did. Why don't we just do it next week so that it let you know, bring all the stuff and people and all the stuff. So you, what are you saying? Are you saying make it more, more than just finger food? Well, make like I'm saying, I signed up for the food next Tuesday, but it is Fat Tuesday, so why don't... So anybody else who feels why like... Why don't we just do it? You know? No, let's do Can we do this? Let's make it a, a dinner and we'll do Flannery O'Connor? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. I, I will... You guys, would you all respond? I'll send out an email tonight. Would you all respond offering to bring something the way we do when we have a dinner? And we'll get back to you and let you know if you're duplicating something and ask you to bring something else. I'll tell everyone I'm going to bring chili, my homemade chili, and cornbread. And three bottles of wine. 
and I'll bring wine. So I got all this really good red wine. So if everybody brings things that would go with that and then achieve it. Is this going to be just us? Or are we inviting everybody in the church? You need to know how much to bring. There's no time in one week. Yeah, right. No, they just they don't come. Yeah. Oh, no, I do. Wait, say it again. No, that, um, I don't think in one week we'll have time to invite more people. Yeah, no, we right. should do it ourselves. Yeah, just us. We'll just plan on the just us? The same size. So it'll be our group. So yeah. I'll bring chili cornbread. Okay. Bring, so I'll bring your kids. I'll bring plum. I do oh, know one person who wants to come who came to the last dinner and got the, the baby Jesus out of the king cake. So she wants to bring yeah, the king cake. Yeah, I was thinking of king cake. She wants to bring Yes. Nice. Okay. So Who's that? that? Listen, I'll send, I, I think that's great. Yeah, we'll we'll have. Bite your tongue. <laughs> Maybe he'll come back next year because somebody got the baby. <laughs> <laughs> last year. Alma. Oh, yes. Yes. So she, she asked me.